at the church in Sardis. Sardis, just to background a little bit, was a very busy and very wealthy center of commerce in Asia Minor. The very first gold and silver coins ever struck were struck in Sardis. And based on the jewelry the archaeologists have found from this period of history, there were a lot of wealthy people in Sardis, and the church was probably in some ways representative of that. The church was evidently, from what Jesus says, well-respected in the outlying community, as well as in the other churches in the region. He says it has a good reputation. And yet, as Brian was reading, I'm sure you heard, Jesus gives an absolutely blistering rebuke to this church. One of the harshest he issues to any of these seven churches. As Brian read, he said in verse 2, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The church at Sardis is in deep trouble. Jesus addresses them here, but we need to find out what specifically was wrong with this church at Sardis. Today, as we look at this letter, the first thing we need to do is answer that question, diagnose the spiritual pathology or the spiritual diseases that were killing this church. Then we want to look at the prescription that Jesus gives to this dying church in an attempt to save this church from death. And finally, we will explore the prognosis of the church based on whether they take or do not take the prescription. So again, what's wrong with this church at Sardis? What sins were they committing that were killing it that deserved such a harsh rebuke from Jesus? Again, you probably noticed the text give general statements, but when we put all of those general statements together and do some analytical work, they actually give us a pretty clear picture of what was going on and what wasn't going on in this church at Sardis. So let's briefly look at four truths about this church that can help us diagnose what is wrong and earn such a huge rebuke from Jesus. We get our first clue in verse 1. Jesus tells the church, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Okay, that's very helpful because it tells us that whatever was wrong with the church in Sardis, it wasn't visible from those who outwardly observed the ministry and who said, that's a good church. Okay, that's it's helpful. So the first truth as to what was wrong with Sardis is Sardis had a strong reputation in areas that did not indicate spiritual life or health, okay? Churches earn reputations from those outside in perhaps several ways, but two main ones. Uh, first, by an absence of obvious outward corruption, in other words, corruption that can be seen by the outside, and second, by some ministry that's going on that's visible, okay? Now, with respect to the obvious signs of corruption, we're talking about questions like, is the church being taken over by false teaching? Are the adherents of the church fighting among themselves? Is the church financially responsible? Is there some kind of public scandal or scandals that have gone on in the church, maybe even in the leadership? Does the church ignore those among them who are genuinely in need and suffering? Okay, no church would have a good reputation if any of those things got out and were noticeable. But to acquire a good reputation, there also has to be some kind of outwardly positive ministry going on. Some ministries visible to those outside the church had to be occurring, okay? These kinds of ministries, however, are the kinds of ministries that even sick churches can produce, right? Certain ministries any church can crank out. 
But some ministries only occur in churches where there's actually spiritual health. For instance, the church in Sardis could not have been a church that was winning new, genuine converts who were growing in their faith in Jesus, okay? Because that requires some internal spiritual health for that to happen. This church in Sardis was not having a profound and positive spiritual impact in the community because that requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be seen. This church was not active in sending out people as missionaries to the uttermost parts of the earth. That requires some level of spiritual help for people to be willing to lay their lives on the line, okay? This was not a church that demonstrably loved the word of God and were growing in their love for it. This was not a church where at least many of the marriages were happy because the husbands were godly shepherds and the wives were lovingly submitting to their husbands. Those kind of things often occur or don't often occur in churches that have only a reputation for being alive but are actually dead. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, but you are dead? It's a bit curious because later on in verse 2, he says that there were things that were still living but we're about to die. So which is it, Jesus? Is it dead or is it about to die? Well, if the church was genuinely spiritually dead, there would be no zero life in it, okay? When Jesus tells the church they're dead, that one we know he's using as a metaphor in the same way that he speaks of deadness in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 24, where the father says, for this my son was dead, and is alive again. So he's using dead metaphorically here. So what kinds of ministry can a church produce that does not necessarily indicate spiritual life and health, but will garner for you a good reputation, okay? Well, we can look around today. Increased numerical growth of people, but who aren't true disciples of Jesus, okay? Some people are just attracted to a very well-produced show on Sunday morning that's passed off as worship. But people who are attracted to that, they don't treasure Christ in their heart because they want to do real worship and not a show. Also, an absence of many of the growth, gross pathologies that we already mentioned. People in a dying church can still get along well and not be divisive with one another. Unchurched people in social clubs do that all the time. The relationships are superficial, but they're not at each other's throats. A dying church can manage to maintain a good facility and pay its bills. Those kind of things can contribute to a good reputation, but don't necessarily indicate spiritual health. Unhealthy, dying churches can be visible in the community in the same way that the service organizations in the community are. Good service organizations without the Holy Spirit can do all sorts of service projects for the community and maintain a reputation of helpfulness, okay? So the first truth revealed in this text that helps us to see the disease in this church is that Sardis is an outwardly strong church in that it has an outwardly strong reputation, but in areas that do not indicate spiritual health. A second truth that reveals the disease that had all but killed this church in Sardis is in verse 2. This is the most specific statement of the failure of the church in the letter. Jesus says to the church, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Okay, that's fairly that's fairly concrete. The broad meaning of works that are not complete is simply they don't meet the standard, okay? They don't measure up. There's something lacking about those works, and this whatever is lacking is very crucial, okay? 
One thing that was lacking, we can understand from this word translated, complete. The word literally means fulfilled. Your works are not fulfilled. That tells us the works of this church in Sardis, at the very least, were not fulfilling God's purpose for them. And we know that God's purpose for all things is his own glory, that they might glorify him. So the second truth that helps us see what the pathology or the disease in this church is, Sardis had works or ministry that was man-centered, not God-centered. What I mean by that is the ministry of this church was not done with the goal of showing the supremacy of Christ. They weren't to put on display the ultimate worth of Jesus, manifesting his character. Healthy churches, that's what causes them to do what they do because they're about God, okay? The ministry in Sardis might have been performed to be helpful in the community. Nothing wrong with that doesn't necessarily indicate any level of health. It might have been done because helping others can be, frankly, personally rewarding. Nothing wrong with that either. Doesn't indicate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The church in Sardis was evidently busy doing things in the name of Christ, but in name only. That's why some scholars say that this church at Sardis is the first recorded expression of nominal Christianity. Nominal means in name only. That's what they were. They were practicing a kind of nominal Christianity. Their works weren't motivated by a desire to honor Christ. This church in Sardis is closest in character to the church at Ephesus, which you remember looked good on the outside, busy, active place, a real beehive, but dead on the inside because they'd lost their first love. Very similar to this church in Sardis. A third truth revealing the nature of the disease in this church is in verse 3. Jesus says to the church, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Now that verse tells us at least two important things about what is ailing this church. First, it says there were only a few who were faithful in the church, okay? Now in the other churches, Jesus implies that the unhealthy or the phony ones were in the minority. The problem in Pergamum and Thyatira was that the majority were tolerating the sins of a few in the church, okay? Those actively engaged in sin, people like Jezebel and the other false teachers, those people were in the minority. The problem was the church was tolerating this evil within the minority. In Sardis, the percentage of healthy folks versus unhealthy is flipped. The majority of the people in this church were phony or dead, with only a few, he says, that still had a chance to repent. Something else that verse tells us is that they had soiled their garments. Okay, that's a technical term that speaks of spiritual defilement of the sins of this world. They'd allowed themselves to be contaminated by the sins of this world, which means that many of these so-called believers lived an awful lot like the world. There wasn't a lot of difference between the way they lived and the way those pagans lived in Sardis. One reason Jesus doesn't list separate sins, as he's done in the last few letters, like sexual immorality and idolatry, is probably not because they were in some way manifest in Sardis. It's probably because he doesn't want to give the impression that the church's sins could be limited to just one or two, as he did in other churches. From all of this, we know that Sardis was comprehensively defiled by the world. Not just one or two problems, it was comprehensively defiled. The majority in this church were living deeply compromised lives and looked more like the world than they did Jesus, okay? 
A fourth and final part of the problem that frequently accompanies these other problems in unhealthy churches is something that's not in the text, but we know from what we saw earlier that the church historians have taught us, and that is Sardis was a wealthy and apparently satisfied church apart from Jesus. Now, we can assume this was part of the disease because the New Testament is filled with warnings that wealth can ruin spiritual health. The rich young ruler is just one of many examples. Having wealth in the church enables you to keep your reputation up, however, because wealth enables you to do those superficial things like keep up your facilities and fun ministries. Having wealth can easily enable you to grow satisfied with all this world has to offer because guess what? You can afford it. Wealth and the things it buys can easily become idols and become substitutes for Jesus. Wealth can buy the things in this world that defile us, the particular things that defile us that happen to cost money. Now, none of these diseases of necessity must accompany wealth, okay? But Jesus is consistently warning about accumulating wealth. He calls it unrighteous mammon, okay? And so we have to be wary of its potentially lethal impact on us, especially here in the West. All that disease in the church of Sardis explains why there is no mention of persecution from either the Jews or the Roman Empire, as we see in other churches. We said that the purpose of the revelation is to fortify and strengthen churches that either are being persecuted or will be persecuted. There's none of that in this verse. There's none of that in this letter. The reason Satan attacks, and Satan isn't mentioned here either, as he is in some of the other letters. The reason Satan attacks a church through persecution or false teaching or division or scandal is because the prince of darkness wars against spiritual light. And the light of Christ is only seen in areas of spiritual health. The world feels no need to persecute sick churches because sick churches don't confront them with their sin, okay? They aren't serious about calling sinners to repent and be converted and to confront them with the fact that they're not right with God. Jesus said in John 15, 8, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The reason the world hates a church is because in a healthy church, Jesus is clearly manifest. His holiness is seen in a church through the holy lives of his healthy saints. His power is seen in the lives of transformed people. His sufficiency is seen as the church reaches beyond itself for what is possible to them, and then Jesus miraculously supplies as they trust in him. Christ's value and worth is seen in individual and corporate worship that is heartfelt and accompanied by a sense of the presence of God. Christ's love is seen in the church as they love one another and as they love those outside the fellowship, okay? As they give the gospel message to those outside and as they practice social justice in the community of those who have need. But if Christ isn't clearly seen in the church, the world has no reason to hate it. The secular media almost never attack more theologically liberal mainline churches because mainline churches by their charter foolishly try to reach the world by becoming like the world. And so they aren't up for any opposition from the world because they're seeking to be like the world. The reason there was no persecution in Sardis is because Satan loves sick churches. Sick churches bear the name of Christ, but they consistently misrepresent his character. Satan loves that. Healthy believers are not attracted to sick churches. They go one time, and they don't go back. 
Sick churches tend to attract spiritually sick people who pose no threat to the kingdom of darkness. Satan would not place a priority on persecuting sick churches because those churches are serving his purposes. They're counterfeits. They're lies. That's what he traffics in. Now that we focus on the fourfold disease that was killing this church, let's look at the prescription that Jesus gives to this diseased church. It's found in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus issues five urgent commands to this church, just staccato, rapid fire. The first command is wake up. The command is really better translated, be watchful, or be careful to pay attention to. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying start seeing and start taking seriously the sin in your church. Wake up to the reality that you've got deep problems, okay? The first step in any repentance is to wake up to the fact that you have a serious sin problem, and that's where Jesus starts with this church in Sardis. There had been some kind of spiritual trance in the membership, you know, a mild coma. They were untroubled by the spiritual cancer that was growing in this body. Next, he commands the church to strengthen what remains and is about to die. Once we see how weak we are, Work to strengthen what little health or spiritual strength remains. This would mean things like spending time in contrition over your sin, crying out for mercy. It would mean seriously returning to apostolic biblical teaching. It would mean disciplining the church, those who are involved in egregious sin, and perhaps bringing in outside help from other healthier churches. I wonder if when Smyrna or Philadelphia or some other of the churches read this letter to Sardis, because they all read all the letters, if they didn't offer some help to them in some way, okay? Jesus tells them that what little health that remains in the church is about to die. Again, he's trying to shock them into wakefulness. He's saying, I am preparing the grave clothes for your church, okay? Jesus in verse three issues three closely related commands. He says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. This is very similar to what he said in Ephesus, wasn't it, right? In 2.5, he said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. After they see their sickness and what it is, they're to strengthen what remains by the grace of God, in dependence upon him, because it's crucial for them to know what a healthy church looks like, to know where they need to go. Jesus says, Remember what they received and what they heard. What they received is the Holy Spirit. We know that because back up in the first verse, it says he has the seven spirits of God. And the way that Jesus introduces himself, we've seen in these letters, is always reflected later on in the letter. So what they received is what all churches received, is what all believers received, and that is they received the Holy Spirit. And what they heard, they heard the gospel message. So he's saying, remember that. And the reason he's saying remember that is because anywhere or anyone who receives the Spirit and hears the gospel, that implies a great many things about what the church should look like. First, believers that receive the Spirit are by nature supernaturally equipped to live and minister on a supernatural level, a supernatural 
explain. There is some truth in the saying, if you can explain what is happening in your church, God probably isn't in it, okay? The reason is because God has equipped each local church with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit so the world will see Jesus and glorify him. One of the questions any local church that is genuinely concerned about their health should regularly ask themselves is, what is happening in our fellowship that we have no human explanation for? What is happening in our church that is clearly a work of supernatural empowerment from the Spirit of God? Now, some people err by saying, well, that means people are being resurrected, right? Risen from the dead. No, I'll be honest with you. I think the fact that we had 20 people in the fireside room this morning in that sweat box back there listening to the Word of God, that was a mark of God's grace. I really believe that. I was shocked. I expected five people to be there. Well, in a church that's healthy, you see that kind of surprise all the time. Little things like that, but also bigger things. Whoa, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect this church to have a $20,000 surplus without any kind of government intervention when we were not meeting together. I think that's a God thing. It's not huge, but it's a God thing. I think that's supernatural. I think that's miraculous. We need to be asking those kind of questions. What is God doing here that we cannot explain? Evidently, the church at Sardis at one time had these kind of ministries going that confirmed that they'd received the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, by implication, remember what the Spirit did among you. Yearn for that. Cry out for that. In prayer, pound on heaven's door for that. Jesus also calls the church at Sardis to remember what you heard. Remember the gospel Remember the gospel. The gospel implies certain things about what a church should look like. The message of the gospel. The gospel promises that sinners will be forgiven all of their sins, given joy for this life, heaven for the next, and equipping to live as saints, holy ones in this life. That's part of the gospel. The gospel promises that even though you may sin and feel horribly, that does not impact your status with God one bit because you've been united with his son Jesus, and that means that God always delights in you. You show me a church that has that in their hearts, I'll show a church that's going towards health. Most churches don't believe that. That's why Tim Keller says we're more sinful than we could ever imagine and more loved than we could ever dare believe. He's right. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you'll never believe the way you should how much God loves you. And yet that message is in the gospel. When the father said to his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the gospel that unites us to Christ tells us that that's what God is saying to you who are united to Christ. This is my beloved son. Fill in your name. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you believe that? Again, show me a church where most of the people believe that. I'll show you a pretty healthy church. I'll show you a church that's pretty bold for what they want to do with Jesus because they're confirmed in the love that God has for them. Do you remember the gospel saving work in your life? what it was when you first got saved and you were in love with Jesus and he began to change your life. Remember the gospel. Remember the saving power of the gospel. If we don't remember how loved we are through the gospel, we're not going to love God in return because we love because he first loved us. Finally, Jesus commands the church 
to repent. As we've seen many times, this means that they must totally change their attitude, their mind about how they've been living. They've been spiritually lethargic and seemingly lifeless. Repenting for them means they need to hate that way of living by the grace of God instead of embracing it or even tolerating it. They need to see it as disgusting and cry out to Jesus, pleading for his mercy to bring them to a better place. That's repentance. That's a repentant church. Now, it's obvious that every command Jesus gives to the church is impossible for them to carry out, okay? Those in Sunday school are tracking with that, right? So why does he command so many things that are impossible? And he does all throughout the Gospels and all throughout here in Revelation. One reason is that Jesus wants us to know that we have a crucial role in getting right with him, okay? We're not passive in that process. We must come to him and admit our need, cry out to him for whatever help we need in that place. It's only when we know what Jesus commands us to do and feel the weight of that that we're motivated to then turn around and say, give me grace to do that. There's no way I can do that. Finally, let's look at the prognosis that Jesus gives to this church depending on what their response is to him. If what remains still alive in Sardis chooses to not repent, Jesus in a sobering verse, says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Coming like a thief obviously means I'm going to come at an hour when you don't expect me. Now, Jesus says this about his final worldwide coming. Here he's talking about this church, okay? He says, you better repent, and you better do it now, because I may come to you soon. You don't know when I'm coming to you, and I will come like a thief, and this, of course, I will come against you. So this is a word of judgment. This is a warning of God's judgment on these people. For those who do show that they are believing by repenting, Jesus promises three blessings in verse 5. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, the promise of white garments, if you go through the book of Revelation and you see how John uses white, he uses it in multiple ways. It can mean purity, it can mean celebration, it can mean a victory. All of those things are symbolized by white. Any one of those is okay. <laughs> Any one of those is good. You're walking in holiness with Jesus, you're celebrating the victory that he, he's given you in him. The second promise to the one who conquers is that Jesus will never blot his name out of the book of life. This verse has been troubling for many people because it's caused people to believe that believers can lose their salvation. Okay, there's a couple big problems. There's lots of problems, but there's a couple really big problems with that. First, if that's true, it would contradict more explicit teachings of the Bible. And you always go with the most explicit teachings of the Bible. This one's not as clear. You let the clear texts interpret what is less clear. There are really clear texts on the fact that our salvation is secure, like Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That teaches, of course, that all who believe and are genuinely predestined and justified and called, those people will be glorified in heaven. Not one will fall away. Not one. If you're justified, you will be glorified. That's not a reason for passivity. It's a means of assurance. Also, in 1 John 2.19, he's talking about false teachers, and he says, they went out from us 
but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Okay, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That teaches that those who do turn away from Christ have not lost their salvation. They were never in Christ in the first place. The very act of turning away is an indication you were never a believer. People who turn from Christ and who don't return were never in Christ. They didn't lose their salvation. Jesus here in verse 5 is simply assuring the one whose name is written in the book and who conquers by faith, I will never erase your name. You are secure. I will not allow the terrible fate to come upon you of being erased out of the book. This is one of the promises that is made to those who persevere to the end. There are two other verses in the Revelation that tell us that to have your name written in the book means that you absolutely will persevere to the end. Just because Jesus said that people who remain faithful will not be blotted out of the book of life, that doesn't automatically mean that some people will be blotted out of the book of life, okay? Revelation 13, 8 says, of those who will reject Christ and worship the beast, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is saying that those whose names are not written in the book of life will bow down to the beast. Not because not being in the book means that you will forsake Christ. Okay? Revelation 17, 8. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. That tells us that those whose names are written in the book of life will not worship the beast. Jesus is simply saying in 3.5 that if you're faithful, I will keep you safe in the book. So how are we to apply this to North Shore Church? This is where we move from preaching to meddling. It depends on how much you see in common between North Shore Church and the church at Sardis as it relates to our weaknesses. One sign that this was a dying church was that Sardis had works or ministry that were man-centered and not God-centered. I think this is getting better here by God's grace. I see more people as I, as I listen to them pray, as I hear them live their lives, I see more of a God-centered focus, but we're still an awful long way from where we need to be, myself included. We need to be radically God-centered, and that comes by the Holy Spirit as we cry out to him. The church at Sardis also has a strong reputation in areas that did not indicate spiritual life. I don't know how strong our reputation is in the community, but things like con rapid conversion growth, sending out missionaries, vital corporate prayer life, which indicates radical dependency on the Holy Spirit, where is that? I don't see it we have to admit that we still lack those indicators of a healthy church. Finally, the church at Sardis was comprehensively defiled by the world. So, is there a genuine hunger for holiness at North Shore Church, marked by seeing our sin, hating our sin, and repenting of it? Well, we can't know for sure, because I don't, I'm not in your clothes all the time. All I know is what doesn't happen at the end of the church service. There are doubtless some, obviously, who, who could be rightly right there, but I don't know anyone who knows this church well 
that would say that this is part of the personality of North Shore Church, that we strive for holiness of life. The point is simply that we must see that we are, as a church, more like Sardis than we'd like to admit. And that means that we must heed these commands of Jesus. Be watchful. Ask the Lord to reveal our individual and corporate sins. Give attention to those things. Strengthen what is weak by confessing our sins to God and to one another, getting back to the Bible and a life of prayer as we cry out to God for that, as we ask people to pray for us. And if we're serious about it, we'll ask people to hold us accountable to those things. You can't have discipleship without accountability. Remember the gift of the Holy Spirit this church has been given and the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, including our holiness. We need to cry out to God so that we might begin to live as a church supernaturally empowered by God, that our church would be marked regularly by things we have no explanation for except God. Don't you want to be in that kind of church? Finally, we need to repent. God, give us a new mind. Give me a hatred for the sin that I am now way too comfortable with. Give me a new hunger for Jesus and a new hunger for his glory, and then God, give me grace to run into his loving arms. How kind God is to love us enough to communicate these crucial truths to us. Thank God for his kindness. May God give us all the grace to repent of our sins and grow into a healthy church for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, you alone can give a perfect diagnosis of any church. And God, there's part of me that wishes that Jesus would come here today and send us a letter to North Shore. And there's part of me that's scared to death of that. So God, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that you would help us to take this word to heart and that you would enable us to respond to it by humbling ourselves, admitting we're not where we need to be. You do give grace to the humble, but you oppose the proud. You oppose proud churches that aren't talking about these things. You oppose proud churches that aren't looking into their heart and saying, God, what's wrong with us? But God, give us grace. We want to do that as we humble ourselves before you so that we might glorify you and know the joy of the Lord is our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.